Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to worship you through song, Lord, through prayer, through reading of the word, and now through uh, God learning um, what your son, um, what Jesus Christ taught uh, at the Sermon on the Mount. God, I pray that you uh, just give us ears to hear uh, what the truth is, and and I pray that you give us uh, ears to understand what what scripture is saying and the passages we'll be covering this morning. And God, I pray that you'll help us um, to... um, to honor you uh, in the way that we live and in the way that we, um, that we live out the Christian life. And I pray that you'll draw us each closer and closer to you every day, Lord, and help us uh, continue to have uh, desire and drive to pursue you, Lord. We love you. We need you, Lord. And we are so thankful um, for your grace and your mercy. God, you're good and you're holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've been in um, Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. So the last, you know, it's no secret, the last several months we've been in Matthew 5. Um, we've been in 17 through 20, um, setting up the rest of the chapter. Uh, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit for the first couple minutes this morning, as usual. Um, but the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus' exposition of the Old Testament law. Um, he goes and he, he picks three of the Ten Commandments as the first three things he addresses, and then he continues even further beyond that. Um, and so in order to understand what Christ means by these passages that we're going to look over today, next week, and the following, um, we need to understand the this, this setup that gets us there. We need to understand what Jesus, um, what, what Jesus sets up all of these sections of, of his exposition of the Old Testament law with. Um, and now, most of you guys were here the last few weeks, so most of you guys understand. Uh, but j- I'll just for the, for the sake of review, Jesus essentially says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He, he's correcting any misunderstanding that he has come to wipe away the Old Testament law. Now, we clarified that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled, and therefore we no longer need to obey the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. However, the moral law, is still binding on Christians today. Moral law doesn't give us access to heaven. Um, The moral law uh, doesn't provide us salvation. It, in fact, exposes that we need salvation. Um, But Jesus, nevertheless, makes the point that we cannot do away with the Old Testament law and the prophets. We continue uh, from this week, uh, from this last week, where we talked about um, the Pharisees, how they were legalistic. And uh, in verse 19, he talks about other people who, who were against the law, who, who, who minimized the least of these commands. And so we have to know from Jesus' words that the law is not irrelevant. We can't ignore it because Jesus didn't think it was irrelevant and Jesus didn't ignore it. We can't be list- legalistic about it because Jesus wasn't legalistic about the law. He, he sat down with the woman who was caught in adultery that the Pharisees wanted to stone her. And he said, which of you has not sinned? Cast the first stone. Because Jesus wasn't legalistic in a wooden sense in the same way that the Pharisees were about the Old Testament law. But in the same way, we have to love the moral law of God. So in our flight from legalism, we can't run to what's called antinomianism, which just means against the law. We can't hate legalism so much that we, that we run into uh, a, an understanding of the Bible where we just say, well, that can't mean what it says because my God wouldn't do that. Or that can't mean what it says because I, I don't want to live that way. And so with all that groundwork laid, uh, we're going to be continuing, as I said, in our study of Jesus' exposition of the law. And it's real interesting to note what Jesus does here because in each of these sections, Jesus gives the verse and then he explains the verse 
and then he gives an application. He gives the verse, he explains the verse, and then he gives an application. That essentially is all that the preacher of God's word or the teacher of God's word, whether it's in your family or in the church or in a school, is called to do. All that we are called to do as Christians when we are teaching others the Bible is to read the verse, explain the verse, apply the verse. We're not to add anything into the verse. We're not to take our outside ideas of scripture and add them into the passages of scripture. We're to read the verse, explain the verse, apply the verse. And Jesus essentially, in many respects, was preaching expositorily here as he was taking verses of scripture and doing that, reading them, applying them, or reading them, explaining them, and applying them. So he says in verse 21, he says, you have, sa- you have heard it said, um, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus is here uh, referring to the Ten Commandments when he references that. He, he's referring to where in, ex- in Exodus chapter 20, it says, you shall not murder. Um, and although he's referencing that, he continues a little further because the quotation doesn't say, you shall n- you've heard it said, you shall not murder. It says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what Jesus is saying is he's actually, he's referencing the Old Testament law. He's referencing Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. But more importantly, he's quoting the rabbis. That's why he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. What what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting the rabbinical tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, and what they have handed down from generation to generation. And he's not at all disagreeing with the Old Testament law. Some people read uh, the Sermon on the Mount and they say, well, Jesus said, uh, the Old Testament says you can't murder, now it's you can't hate. He's not changing it. He's explaining what God meant in the original intention of the Ten Commandments. So as he quotes here the rabbis in that end section, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, he's referencing the Old Testament scripture. He's explaining the Old Testament scripture. He's applying the Old Testament scripture. And he's referencing the rabbis and saying, you've heard it said from them this, but I say to you this. And we'll move on from there to verse 22. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So w- what is Jesus saying here? Uh, you've heard it said that, th- that, the, uh, that the rabbi's interpretation of the sixth commandment is that, is that uh, if you commit murder, you'll be liable to judgment. But Jesus is saying that the application of the sixth commandment goes far further than what the rabbi's did with it. The application of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, goes far beyond their wooden interpretation of the Old Testament law. He's saying, yeah, of course, of course you shall not murder. Yeah, that's what the law says. But it goes beyond that. You, you, you shall not be angry with, angry with your brother or sister. You shouldn't call people idiots, is, is one interpretation of that word insult there. Whoever says you fool will be subject to uh, the fires of hell. So he takes the sixth commandment and he takes it from murder all the way down to insult. He takes it from murder all the way down to insult. Every single one of us in this room has insulted people. Many of us have probably done it this week. It, it's, it's, a, it's a sin that we commonly fall into. Um, James, as we've talked about many times, says no one can tame the tongue. Anyone who, who says they're perfect in what they say is a liar. 
Many of us have insulted people this week. And what's interesting is Jesus took that commandment, you shall not murder, and didn't say, oh, you shall not have, you know, hatred for people that makes your blood boil. He said, you shall not insult people. So what we're to avoid then as Christians is not just the murder, but everything that preceded the murder. We're not to just avoid murder, but everything that precedes murder. We're not to just avoid adultery, as we'll talk about next week. We're to avoid everything that precedes adultery. And so everything that precedes murder could include slander. It could include insult. It could include resentment. It could include bitterness. It could include jealousy, gossip, ridicule. Those are all things that build up in us enmity against our brothers and sisters. When we start to make assumptions about what other people think or what they're doing or why they did this, when we call them fools. You know the reason Jesus says here, don't call someone a fool? One of the reasons is because you don't always know who a fool is. I might say that person's a fool for what they think. Well, who's to say? I know, I know what the right answer is. Because none of us in this room, our God, none of us have um, the, the omnipotence that God has. So the question is, is Jesus saying that every time someone insults somebody else, they're going to commit murder? No, obviously not. He's, he's obviously not saying every single time you insult somebody else, every single time you're angry, you're going to commit murder. But he is saying that every single time someone insults or harbors bitterness against someone else, it is a sin. And it's the sin for every murderer that preceded the murder. And so the, the question is, what does Jesus mean by the second half of the verse where he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This word insult, um, the CSB renders it insult. Some translations will call it, uh, you shouldn't call someone an idiot. Whoever calls someone an idiot will be liable to the council. It's, uh, it's the Hebrew word raka, or R-A-C-A is the word. And some of your translations probably just translate it directly as R-A-C-A, raka. Some of your translations probably say that because that word is only used one time in the entirety of scripture. Um, and it's here. So we don't have a plethora of context to understand what it means, but from exterior evidence outside of the scripture, we know that this, this, it's essentially a derogatory term that just means empty-headed. So that word insult there means whoever calls someone else empty-headed will be liable to the council. And so the word idiot essentially means empty-headed. Um, there, there are other words that mean similar things. And Jesus says that we should not call um, our brother those words. We should not call our brothers and sisters um, those words. And then Jesus continues, and he says that whoever calls someone a fool will be subject to the hell of fire. That, that I think, is, is convicting. Th those two sections are convicting for all of us because as, as, as human beings who are filled with pride, we're often prone to think that what we think is correct and other people are wrong and therefore they're fools. And we have to know that that, that we can't, there are some things that we cannot compromise on because the scriptures is, is so clear about them. But we should not be going around insulting our brothers and sisters, calling them fools or idiots or raka or, you know, whatever replacement word you've come up for some of those things. My, my mom always says this. Uh, when I was a kid, she would say, don't say stupid. And I'd be like, all right, you're stupendous. Um, and she, she, she always brings that up. I saw her last night at, uh, Sam was performing at Liberty. I saw her last night there. 
And uh, she said, remember when you were a kid? She was like, what are, you, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I told her, she's like, remember when you were a kid and you call everything stupendous? Um, and truth be told, the heart behind that probably was to find a word to call other people stupid and to disobey what Jesus says right here. Um, so the question is though, is, is this unilaterally like the case all across time? You can't call people fools? Some people will say yes. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that, that the scripture teaches this as a, as a unilateral thing all across. It says whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to judgment. And whoever says his fool, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's written to the brother. And I think you could say that you could argue that that's either your neighbor or your Christian brother. But the reason I think there's a stronger case that we shouldn't take this as a unilateral, you can never use the word fool, is because Jesus used the word fool. Uh, in Matthew 23, I believe it is, Jesus, as we've talked about many times uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, insults the Pharisees vigorously. He calls them a bag of snakes. He, he calls them fools. He calls them all sorts of things. And uh, Jesus was obviously righteous in doing that. Now, some people might object and say, well, that was Jesus. Jesus can do those things, but we can't. Jesus was God, so Jesus can cast judgment in a way that Christians can't. And I think that sounds like a fair objection until you read through the Apostle Paul and in Galatians chapter 3, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? He, he literally says to them, you, got, you foolish Galatians, what are you doing? Because you're, you're abandoning life by the Spirit for life by works. He says, do, do, you not, do you think that you've now somehow gained this salvation by works? No, and you're fools for thinking that. So I think the important thing to note is that probably most of the time when we think that person's foolish or that person's an idiot, Probably most of the time that comes from a sinful position, but there are places that we can definitively say that's foolish. That, that, that person is, is thinking empty-headedly. Proverbs says, I think it's Proverbs, says the fool says in his heart there is no God. You know what that means? Anybody who says there is no God is a fool. And I, I will gladly, in love and in, in, in truth, admit that anyone who... who, who uh, who believes there is no God is a fool because that's what the scripture teaches. But if you come up to me and you have a different opinion on what color I should paint my truck and I just lambast you calling you a fool and I'm serious about it, there's a problem there. And obviously that's a silly example, but, but we see these types of things all the time as brothers in Christ. Um, I think the same thing is true for anger. So Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Is it a sin to be angry? No, it's not. Sometimes it's a sin to be angry. Sometimes it's a sin to be angry. If you're angry for sinful reasons, yeah, of course that's sin. But it's not always unilaterally sin to be angry. As Christians, we should be angry towards the devil. We should be angry about our sin. We should be angry about the sin in other people, but not let that bleed into anger towards them. We as Christians should be filled with hate towards the things of the world. See, most of the world looks at Christianity and says, Christianity should be love, love, love. Jesus was love, love, love. Yes, he was love, 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 but he was also hate towards the things of the world and towards things that were evil. And so therefore, as Christians, we should hate the things that are evil. And in humility and love, confront people who believe in evil things. But we should hate the things that are evil and deceptive without having hatred or, or bitterness or resentment or anger towards the people who hold some of those uh, positions. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, he says, be angry and do not sin. 
Some translations say, in your anger, do not sin. So is it a sin to be angry? No, it's not. If your anger is based on the righteousness of God, and because anger is an emotion, sometimes anger gets out of control. And if your righteous anger against somebody else's sin causes you to cuss them out, I think probably your righteous anger is not really so righteous. Because we should, in our anger, not sin. And the only things we should be angry about are the very things that God was angry about. So the same principle that says it's possible to be angry and not sin, I think says it's possible to call someone a fool and not sin. The, the, the important thing is your heart. The important thing are what are your intentions and what you're doing? And like, like I said a few minutes ago, if, if you find yourself calling people fools more often than not, it's probably rooted in sin. We should, we should be slow to, to anger as the book of James chapter says. Uh, the book of James, I don't know why I said chapter, the book of James says, right? So everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It doesn't say don't become angry. It says be slow to anger. We should be able to sit back and take the hits. And, and level-headedly think about how we respond as believers and as Christians. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's kind of a funny story. Um, I, uh, I volunteered at some uh, uh, humanitarian organization uh, w- next to this guy uh, who, he, he just, he said quite boldly that uh, anytime he thought somebody else was an idiot, uh, anytime someone was being an idiot, he would just tell him. He was like, yeah, when, when someone's acting stupid, when someone's an idiot, I just tell him because I'm a truth speaker. I'm, because I, I speak my mind. And I just heard him say that, and I was just like, dude, why, why do you think you're the one that gets to determine who's an idiot and who's not? Like, that, that doesn't make sense. And I think in an instance like that, that's sin. We should not be people, we should not be going around just name-calling everybody, tearing everybody down. But we should say that those who believe there are no God are foolish. We should say that the, the secularists who are trying to, to push godless ideas down the throats of many of the people in this country are foolish because they just are because the scripture teaches that they are. Just a couple verses after uh, Ephesians 4.26, in Ephesians 4.29, Paul says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Any. I, I would bet that probably most of us did not obey that faithfully this week. I, don't, I probably didn't go a day without that. Because it's so easy to sin with your tongue, but we are not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The speech that we should use should build others up and shouldn't further resentment in us towards other people, shouldn't further anger in us towards other people. But I would argue that when Jesus called the Pharisees fools, he's building others up. By tearing down the idols of the age, he's building others up. When Jesus went in and, and flipped the tables in the temple, when Paul called the Galatians foolish, I would argue that those things were completely wholesome talk because there are times when sin must be confronted, truth must be addressed and brought to bear, and the hypocrisy of sin must be exposed. We should lovingly and truthfully c- c- confront error and, and we should never do it out of vengeance or hatred. And, and sometimes that's hard, especially many of us in here are people of conviction and 
we can take any number of the things that our, our secular age is trying to normalize. Some of us in here are very mad about those things, and we should be. But if our answer for that is just vigilanteism and, and sinful anger, that's not right. We should, in humility, call out the errors of our modern world and the errors of those who do not love the Lord. So what Jesus is doing here in, in all of these verses that we're going over on, uh, on murder is he's taking it back to the heart. He's saying, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you, look at your hearts. But I say to you, look at all of those things that precede murder. Look at all those things that come before murder. And, and judge yourself on those things. Uh, in John chapter, uh, in 1 John chapter 3, you can turn there if you've got your Bibles with you. 1 John chapter 3, we mean verse 15. There's a parallel passage to this teaching of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5. 1 John chapter 3. John says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. That's so close to what Jesus is saying here. If you're angry and hateful towards your brother, in the eyes of God, you are a murderer. Because you've broken that law. The sixth commandment that says you shall not murder, as we see what Jesus is saying, means you shall not hate your brother or sister. That's what the sixth commandment is, is saying. Jesus, again, Jesus did not come to rewrite the sixth commandment of, of the Ten Commandments. Jesus came to say, this is what I intended from the beginning. And I say I on purpose because Jesus is God and Jesus has existed for all of eternity with God and with the Father God and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity, in the triune God. And so Jesus is saying, from the beginning, this is what I intended. When I said you shall not murder, I meant you shall not hate, you shall not, you shall not um, tear down, you shall not be angry against your brother or sister. And, uh, and in 1 John, John, John echoes the same thing. He says that no murderer has eternal life in him and anyone who hates is a murderer. Now, the, it should be noted, the punishment for hatred, I think, is, is far less severe than the punishment for murder on earth and in eternity. Um, it's, it's not true that all sin is equal, um, I don't think, scripturally. I don't, I don't see that anywhere. It's not true that all sin is equal. Sin has different levels of consequences. There, there are sins that specifically God hates more than many other things, as the Old Testament talks about. But all sin will, will, will leave you with eternity in hell. You can sin once in your life and you'll deserve eternity in hell, absolutely. Um, but I, I will say that the consequences for murder are far greater than the consequences of hate. But it's important to note that hatred is always what precedes murder. So as Christians, would it be wise for us to stop at murder or stop at hatred? Jesus says neither. He says stop at insult. If, if there was a list, it would go murder, hatred, anger, insult, and slander maybe, or you could reverse those. And Jesus says, stop down here. And really what he means is stop before you even say it. Whoever says you fool it w will be subject to the hell of fire. Yeah, but, but, but I, I mean, whoever thinks you fool, I think is also subject to the fires of hell because God does not just care about our actions, he cares about our intentions. 
God doesn't just care about the things that we, we do or the things that we say when, when we're polished and when we're not angry. He cares about our intentions. So you might say, I've never said to anyone in this room that I hate them. Cool, well, have you thought it? You might say, I've never called anybody in this room or anyone in my family an idiot. Okay, H- have you thought it? And did you repent when you did? Because God does not only care about the things we do, he cares about the things that we want to do. God doesn't only care about the things we do. God cares about the things that we want to do. So instead of stopping at murder, like the the rabbis thought that that commandment intended, we should stop at jealousy. We should stop at bitterness. We should stop at envy. We should stop at anger. We should stop at grudge holding. And we should stop at insult. We should stop far short of murder and even far short of hatred to all of our Christian brothers and sisters. And I would argue to those outside the church as well. Jesus and and John, through the Holy Spirit, both make this exact same point. Jesus takes it back to the heart. And and that, I think, if you look at the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, if you you haven't in a while, go read Matthew chapter 5 through 7, just to, I mean, it's just such a good sermon. Read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount and look at it and you'll see Jesus takes the Old Testament law, Jesus takes legalism, Jesus takes, um, G- Jesus takes doing things for different reasons and he, every time he brings it back to the heart. In the Beatitudes, we talked about this numerous times. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it doesn't just say blessed are the humble, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. Because you can, you can force all of, all of those things to some level. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those whose desires are in the right place. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. What does that mean? Pure in heart means to have the right motives. So we can't isolate this teaching on murder and say this is separate from the rest because Jesus in the beginning of the Beatitude sets the entire sermon up and says, look at your hearts because that's what matters. So the Judaism looks at the outside. The, the Old Testament uh, Pharisees looked at the outside, the things you did, the things you said. But God looks at the heart. The Old Testament says, man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So we are not... to just take the commandments of the law, interpret them rather woodenly, and not understand the intention and the heart of Christ's commands. Things don't become sinful at the moment that we do them. Things don't become sinful at the moment that we do them. The moment that you call someone an idiot is not where the sin started. It's everything that preceded what you did. The man who murdered somebody else is not, it wasn't just the murder that was sinful, it was the getting in his car and driving to the place where he committed that act of of egregious violence. Things don't become sinful when we do them, they become sinful when we intend to do them. And the desires that provoke that sin is what's sinful, and that's what we need to root out of our lives. In the New Testament, we'll talk about this verse tomorrow, there's a verse that uh, Paul Paul says, uh, you were saved this paraphrases what he says. You are saved from the sinful acts of the flesh and from the desires of the flesh. Because as Christians, 
We are to stop our sin as best we can at the desire level, at the heart level, at the intention level, and not just at the action level. We see this in the story of Cain and Abel. Many of us are probably familiar with that story. Genesis chapter 4, if you want to turn there, you can. Um, You don't have to, but um, we'll be, uh, in the story of Cain and Abel, essentially Cain is jealous of his brother because God accepts Abel's Abel's sacrifice and doesn't accept Cain. So Cain Cain offers his sacrifice to God with what? With, With an insincere heart. And, 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 and the Lord's response to that is to not accept and not be, um, not be pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but to be pleased with Abel's. And so the Lord says to Cain, what, what are you doing? Why is, it, why is this happening? And Cain's response is to go murder his brother. So Cain let bitterness and, and hatred and jealousy crop up in his heart to the point where what did he do? He was the first person to murder his brother. If Cain had repented of his lesser sins early on, when God first confronted him of the fact that his, his giving is, is not from a pure heart, he, wouldn't have, he would not have committed the murder. If Cain had repented of his intentions and his desires, he would not have done it. And so the Lord continues from verse 22, where we've been for the last few minutes, into verse 23. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So here Jesus makes the point that we are not to go long without reconciling relationships. In the case of Cain and Abel, it it was exactly about the same thing as this verse is talking about. It was about sacrificing to God. This verse is saying, when you're offering to God, when you're leaving something at the altar, and Jesus was saying this to people who are still under the old covenant, but w- w- when you're leaving your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, go to him and be reconciled. In the case of Cain and Abel, it was about this same very thing. It was about sacrificing to the Lord. And, and Cain had something against his brother. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't go first and be reconciled. And because of that, he murdered his brother. You could say in our day, a way to interpret this verse would be, before you come to church, before you worship the Lord, before you sing songs of praise, before you take communion, before you worship with your family, before you make financial offerings to the church, reconcile any severed relationships. That does not mean put off off worship until you reconcile because you're going to reconcile in two months. That means go reconcile now and come worship the Lord. Verse 24 says, leave your gift there before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come get your gift. God doesn't care about the things we give him. He cares about our hearts. The Old Testament says in the case of Solomon, um, no, I think it was Saul. In the case of Saul, um, uh, it says obedience is better than sacrifice. Because Saul disobeyed God in the sacrifices uh, after they had conquered a city. And he was disobedient to God. But he was like, God, I have you all these sacrifices. I have all this stuff for you. And God was just like, I don't care about this stuff. I care about your heart. That's like robbing a bank to give money to the church. It, it, It is so contrary to the nature of scripture. God doesn't want our gifts when they're given from an unrepentant heart. 
He doesn't want our, he, when we worship him, we praise his name. It's just hypocrisy. When we give to the church without doing it uh, with a joyful heart, it's just hypocrisy. God would so much rather you seek reconciliation with your Christian brothers and sisters and learn to love your Christian brothers and sisters than to give half your income to the poor. Again, this was the sin of, of Cain and Abel. Cain was offering gifts to the Lord. He wasn't withholding the gifts from God, but he was doing it with a bitter heart. Notice verse 23 says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, and it goes on, leave your gift there. But it doesn't say if you come to the altar and you're mad at your brother, and brother just means, just means Christian brother. It doesn't mean blood sibling. It could mean blood sibling, right? But it just, it just means th- those, th- those who you fellowship with. It could mean brother, brother or sister in the church, right? But it says, if you're, it doesn't say if you have something against your brother, go fix it, which you should do. And I think that application comes out of the verse. It says, if your brother has something against you. So you know what that means? If you come to the altar, if you come to worship the Lord and your brother has something against you and you don't think you did anything, but your brother has something against you, you should go reconcile with your brother. Even if it's not on you, you should go reconcile before you come worship the Lord because what does the Lord want to see with his church? He wants to see his church unified. He does not want to see, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he does not want to see the division that's in the Christian church. He wants to see us unified and we'll disagree on things. We'll have different opinions on things. But if that gets into slander, if that gets into hatred, if that gets into bitterness, name calling, all of those things are contrary to God's word. How, hip- how hypocritical would it be for us to come to church and worship the Lord and slander everybody who, 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 who thinks differently than us or, or anything like that? and not reconcile our Christian relationships and then come to church and and say that we're here to worship the Lord. God doesn't care about what we give him. He cares about our hearts. The reason we give him things in the first place is all about our hearts. So there's not to be animosity between Christian brothers and sisters. There will be disagreements between Christian brothers and sisters. You will have conflict and and conversation. Every single one of us are humans. Chuck used to frequently say, life's about putting up with people who are putting up with you. And a lot of times that's true. But really, life is about forgiving other people who are forgiving you. Life is about loving other people who are loving you in in, in spite of the sin that we commit against each other. So the question is, how are we to handle conflict when there's conflict and hurt between brothers and sisters? How are we to handle conflict in the church? Jesus lays this out very clearly um, in Matthew uh, chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Um, I don't have this up on the, up on the screen, uh, and I'd like everyone to just turn uh, there so that they can see these three verses. We'll be in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If they still refuse to listen, tell the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So verse 15 says, we are to confront offenses and sin lovingly and humbly. And these are some extrapolations I've added onto that but we're from other parts of scripture. But we're to confront other sin lovingly and humbly and knowing that we also have sinned against them, likely, right? So if, if your brother or sister sins, you are to go point out their fault and do it in humility. Don't just say, hey, I found something in you and I've been wanting to point this out for a long time. When your brother or sister sins, point out their fault and, and really it should, it should grieve us to point out faults in brothers and sisters. If it makes us joyful or happy to point out sin in other brothers and sisters, you know what that says? That we are full of spiritual pride because we wanna see other people broken and hurting. So it should grieve us to point out sin because we should hate sin. But we should not back away from doing this. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And then it says this, just between the two of you. You're not to confront someone else's sin in front of a whole room of people. You are to confront their sin just between the two of you. What's the reasoning for that? What's the reasoning for that? Because if you confront their sin to other people before you confront it to them, you've just committed gossip. And the scripture is very clear that gossip is sinful. You're not even to err, I think, according to this verse. Once again, it says, point out their fault just between the two of you. You are not even to air one word of complaint or criticism about that person before going to them personally. So when someone sins against you and you, and, and you say, they sinned against me, what am I gonna do about this? You can go to your close friend and say, hey, look, I just need to vent, get this off my chest and figure out how, should I, how I should address this. You can say, hey, I really need you to pray for me because I'm about to confront so-and-so for what they did to me. Or you can obey the word of God and go to that person directly without circumventing what God's will is for the Christian. So this idea of, of Christians going and venting uh, about their problems with other people is contrary to scripture. And most of the time, I would argue that venting or, or getting things off your chest, as it might be called, is sinful. And it's just an excuse for gossip. We, we've all heard the stories of, of people that sit in a room of, of believers that are together to say prayer requests, and somebody says, well, pray for so-and-so because they're doing this, and they did that, and these are all the things they did, and people ask questions, and more gets told. We often use venting and prayer as excuses for gossip. And I say we. It, this, is, this, is a, this is a sin that, that all of us can succumb to. But the biblical answer to handling conflict within the church is to go to the person directly. And, and that's so brilliant. That's so, the, the, the commands of scripture are so much smarter than, than our carnal mind because our, our, our heart says, my, my heart says I want to talk to this person and get their thoughts and this person and get their thoughts and, and kind of get my ducks in a row and tell other people what they did and then go to them and say, look, I think you messed up. And then I'll feel good about, about, about calling them out. That's what our hearts want. But when that happens, it always creates drama and divides the Christian church. We are to go to people directly when we have problems with them. And I would say this too. I think it's very important to have openness uh, in marriage and a, a lot of communication between a husband and a wife. But it, I believe it is possible to gossip with your wife. I believe it is possible to gossip with your husband. And where is the line? I, I think that's a hard line to draw. I think you should talk with your wife or your husband about a lot of things. But I think the line is where your heart is. 
Because if you're hard about talking about somebody else is to bash them, is to, is to be all frustrated, is to slander them with your wife, you're gossiping with your wife. There's no New Testament or Old Testament scriptural command that says don't gossip unless you're talking to your spouse. It's not in there. But oftentimes we live like it is because we want to be one. And in being one, we want to think the same way. So we want to tear down the same people. But, but I would challenge you, I would challenge you, you shouldn't even be that way by yourself. So you can't gossip to yourself, but you can certainly think slanderous thoughts. And uh, if you say, well, I want to be one and I want us to think the same way about this person. Okay, all right, fine. Why are you thinking such judgmentally harsh things about that person? Again, I'm not saying it's sinful to call someone a fool. I'm not saying it's sinful to be angry. I'm not saying it's sinful to be mad and frustrated and to be ticked off. There's good things to be mad about. But it is sinful when that bleeds over into resentment and bitterness and anger and frustration and all different types of sin. I'm, I'm speaking in generalities. I think there, there, are, there are cases where it may be necessary to get someone else involved. Um, I, you know, for example, a parent, um, a church leader, an, an authority may need to get involved before you confront something on someone on something, it, specifically if they've broken the law or, or something, uh, something you know, specifically awful. But generally speaking, I don't think most of the conflicts that we talk to one another about fall into those categories. So that's just verse 15. This, this, this passage is so thick. That's verse 15. Verse 16 then says, but if they will listen, sorry, it says, but if they, so to, to preview that, you've gone to them, you've, you've uh, pointed out their faults just between the two, you've done it humbly and loving, and it says, if, if they listen, you've won them over. Then verse 16 says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if after you've confronted someone, they don't listen to your plea, then, then you have biblical grounds to get one or two other people involved. And I think that's very wise. And it's not, you're not to get other people involved by going to them and complaining to them and talking to them and then going back to the person. You're to get one or two other people, say, come with me, let's talk to this person. And there's wisdom in that because uh, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Oftentimes we think, well, you know, when I did this or that, my intentions were good. But when that person does this, their, their intentions are to hurt me and, and, and they're, they're wrong and all this stuff and all that. Oftentimes we, we um, when, when we're frustrated with someone, we, we, we twist their motives in our head to say that they did this or that because of this or that. But the reason you should go to them one-on-one -on -one is because if you don't and you go to other people, you'll build a case against them and then you'll come to them way more frustrated than you should be with way more assumptions than you should have. And you'll say a bunch of things you shouldn't say. And so the same is true when you bring someone else along because people, when, when airing out disagreements, I, I've found are often pretty reasonable. When there's disagreements and you don't talk about them, it just gets really unreasonable. There becomes a lot of conflict. But when you sit down and say, look, this is what I think, this is what you think, how can we get on the same page here? Most people, most believers, if, if they're following God's word and trying to live a holy life are pretty reasonable in those areas. I, I would argue that if we took this approach to conflict management that's in the scriptures, you can call it conflict management or whatever you want to call it, but if we took this approach to dealing with division in the church, in our families, among believers, I would argue that the conflict in the Christian church at large, I'm talking about the whole church, would drop by nine, 95% maybe, 90%, I don't know. 
If we obeyed the, the uh, command not to gossip and, and uh, not to slander, not to call people fools, not to, not to insult people, as Jesus says in our primary passage for today, and we went to people one-on-one with our problems, and then if that didn't work, we brought somebody else involved. I think the conflict and division between Christians would drop quite a bit. It's when people begin gossiping and judging the intentions of others that conflict can go from a 3 to a 10 real fast. I think also if we gave most people, most of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the benefit of the doubt in conflict and controversy, or at least a chance to explain themselves, we'd find that most people don't intend to hurt us. They don't intend to, to be um, mean in the things that they say. But, but they intend those things differently and we interpret it wrong. So we're first to go to people directly, next to bring one or two witnesses. And lastly, verse 17 says, if they still refuse, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So first go to them directly, bring to people, and then bring them before the church. And if they don't repent, what do we do? We kick them out of the church. Yes, the, the Bible very clearly teaches church discipline. And this is the thing that in our uh, seeker-sensitive uh, world where, where we desire to bring uh, outsiders in to the church and conform the church to the world that, that we've lost, we've created in, in the United States many churches that are a combination of believers and non-believers intentionally. And I, I don't think if it, any of us would, would tell a non-believer not to come to our church if they came, but we shouldn't tailor our church services to attract non-believers because the Bible teaches that the church is the body of Christ. So the church, according to 1 Corinthians 14, should be for the edification of believers. And so if somebody is in your church and claims to be a Christian and will not repent of sin after confronting them once and confronting them again with somebody else, you're to bring them before the church, ask them to repent of their sin, and if they don't, remove them from your church. Paul talks about that in the middle of 1 Corinthians as well. Um, we are not to allow, um, to allow leaven to get into the whole batch of dough and destroy the church. One false Christian can do a world of damage to a Christian church. Two false Christians can do even more. Three, four, five. When there are people who are not living the Christian life the way the Bible intends it to be lived, they will destroy the Christian church. And that's why we're commanded in Scripture in this passage and in 1 Corinthians to when someone is disobedient and unwilling to repent, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Why? Because they probably are one. They probably are a pagan. They probably don't really know God. But maybe they do. And the good thing is, when you kick them out of your church, it might, just like the, the uh, prodigal son, it might make them come to their sentence and shake themselves around and be like, oh my gosh, what did I do? That was my family. That was my church. They loved me. I loved them. And, and I, I was kicked out because I would not repent of my sin. And they may come back and restore themselves to fellowship and be one with the Lord and one with the church. In our day, most of us, and I, I say this speaking of the church at large, but I think we need to apply it to ourselves as well. Most of us don't follow Jesus' principles here, the, the three-step principles to, to dealing with church division and conflict. Instead of going, people to, going to people directly, we gossip about them behind their backs. 
Instead of getting others involved to help bring uh, unity to, to the conversation, we then just go vent to people and tell them to pray for so-and-so or say bless their heart or something like that. And, and frankly, la- lastly, to Jesus' last point in verse 17, we don't practice church discipline by and large as, as, a, as a global church. We, we, we've, we've abandoned Jesus' teaching here. We've abandoned Jesus' teaching here. I think, like I said, if, if we heeded Scripture's outline for managing conflict, disagreement, disunity, and disharmony in the church, we would find much more unity in the body of Christ. And sometimes we think we're helping by not addressing things, but that only makes things boil. If you've got a pot of water on the top of a stove and you want it to cool down, and the stove is on, just a piece of advice, don't leave it on the stove. Because it'll continue to get warmer and warmer and warmer, and then it will boil. And the same thing is true with when we have disagreements or when we have misunderstandings or when we have hatred or anger or envy or jealousy or strife or envy or any, any sin towards another believer. We can say, I'm just going to ignore it because it's not that important and it will continue to boil. Unless we repent of our arrogance and, and come to the Lord humbly and come to those people and ask them to repent of their sin and handle things biblically. Bitterness grows. It doesn't, it doesn't stop growing. Resentment always grows. Gossip only continues and further creeps in. Anger becomes prevalent when, when we do not address things head on. We, we take ourselves down that path of insult to tearing people down, to anger, to hatred. And in some cases, murder happens at the end of that. I'm not in, insinuating that, that anybody in here is going to be a murderer but we need to stay far, 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 far away from the things that lead to murder. I think not this disobedience to Matthew chapter 18 uh, is something that, that we're often guilty of. Often we, we talk about others uh, to others and about our problems with them to someone else rather than going to the person and in truth, to put it bluntly, that's gossip. And gossip is pretty much always cowardice. To talk about somebody else's problems to somebody and say, this is all the things that they have wrong without going to that person first. You probably shouldn't do it anyway, even if you do, but without going to that person first. That's simply cowardice. When, when, when we go to people and say, this is all the things they did without that person there to defend themselves and explain their point of view, it's because we are too scared of confrontation and conflict to handle it the biblical way. And if you're too scared of confrontation and conflict, you shouldn't try to have that confrontation and conflict with someone else. So as a global church, I think Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 are very pertinent. We say we don't murder, we say we, we might not hate, but we insult and we do those things. But I think further than just the global church, I don't want to skip over the application of this text to us today. Um, I think that gossip is something that we here in our church, in Bethlehem Baptist Church, need to repent of. Um, I've, I've been here at this church for several years, and I'm not saying I haven't been a part of it, because every single one of us in here has sinned. But I think we need to repent of our propensity to go to other people and talk about other people's problems to other people without going to that person. Because every single time that happens, that just causes division, disunity, and hurt. 
It's so easy to get talking negatively about people who are not around us. But it's simply just sinful and it's prideful. I've mentioned this before, but we also have this notion, this idea that gossip is only gossip if what we're saying is not true about that person. But that's not true. Slander is when you're saying untrue things about someone. Gossip is when you're saying negative things about someone to make someone else's perception of that person lower. So even if what you're saying is entirely true, it's still gossip. Because gossip, once again, is when we are trying to intentionally share damaging information about another person, regardless of whether it's true or false. It's just talking negatively about someone behind their back. And there is a reason Jesus commands us not to do this. It, feel, it feels good. It feels empowering. It really does. I, I, uh, it, it, feel, it feels good to say, well, this person did this and I think they're so stupid and you feel good about yourself. But no, it, it only causes division and it only causes disunity. And we as a church, as a collective body of believers at Bethlehem Baptist, we need to work hard to root that out of our lives because like every sin, when sin creeps in and becomes a habit, it's really hard to root it out. It's really hard to root it out. Um, so we're not to become bitter. We're not to gossip. We're not to insult or slander. We got all of those things. But we are to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. So back to what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, which I think is very similar to what he teaches in Matthew 18. He continues on, and we'll be in, uh, in 25 and 26 to finish up this section. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We should not be slow in our reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. That's what that means. It says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Because if you don't come to terms quickly, things will just es escalate. That's all it's saying. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and the guard have you put in prison. If we don't come to terms quickly with our adversaries, with those we have conflict with, it will just escalate. And, and there are times where we as believers are gonna see things so differently that we say, you know what? I don't doubt that you're a blood-bought, born-again child of the living God, but we have to divide right now. We want to have unity in Christ, but you and I can't work side by side because we see so differently on this thing. We saw that with Paul and Barnabas in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas had, had, had differing views um, on a particular topic or, or subject. And because of that, they said, we're going to part ways. And I totally expect to meet Paul and Barnabas in heaven one day. And I totally expect they're together praising the Lord side by side. But they had different convictions about something. And so lovingly they parted ways. And as Christians, sometimes we need to do that. That's okay. It's not sinful to part ways. There's a reason why the Baptist church and the Presbyterian church don't, don't worship together. Many, many Baptist churches are Orthodox and so are many Presbyterian churches. And, and I believe the Presbyterians are not right. But they're believers and they're Christians and they love the Lord and they see something differently than we do. And we might say, as Paul and Barnabas did, we're going to pursue our ministry in different places. But man, I can't wait to worship, you, worship with you in eternity. That's what unity looks like. And that's what coming to terms with those we differ with looks like. Jesus says, come to terms quickly. 
And if you agree, you agree. If you don't, be loving and, 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 and am, amiable about it. Just as the murderer and the angry man are, are liable to the fires of hell, so too the one who does not seek reconciliation in verse 26 is liable to the fires of hell. Those who murder, those who hate, those who call other fools and, and, and have not repented of their sin and trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior will not get out until they have paid the last penny. And they will not pay the last penny because the only person who can pay the last penny and atone for your sin is Jesus Christ. The only person who can pay the last penny of your debt is Jesus Christ. And so if you're in this room and you say, you know, I, I confess that I'm, I'm filled with anger. Uh, I, I am often insulting people. I, I, I've got a hot temper. I'm quick to get mad. Any of those things. Confess your sin to the Lord. If you're, if you're a Christian, co- confess your sin and turn back to Christ and say, you know what? I'm going to work harder to honor the Lord in this area. If you're not a Christian, you will not be forgiven for those sins and you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. If you're not a believer, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. What that means is you will pay the price for your sin and your price will be an eternal price. Christ is the only one who can fully satisfy the consequences and the price of our, pen, of, of our, of our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you sin, what you deserve to be paid for your sin is death. Many of us in here go to jobs and we work, and when we work, we get paid. The thing I did makes it so I deserve the payment. Well, when I sin, the thing I did, the sin, makes it so I deserve death in the exact same way. Why? Because God's a holy God and he cannot tolerate sin. But there is hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord will be saved and will be saved from their sin and will not have to pay the last penny because Jesus hung on a cross and paid the last, pen, paid the last penny for our sins and saved us of that. So to wrap up here, um, as believers, we are not to insult. We are not to tear others down. We're not to hate. We're not to be angry. We're not to hold bitterness, resentment, to gossip, but we're to reconcile with other believers. We're to reconcile with other believers. We're to seek unity and seek holiness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Before you leave your gift at the altar, go, go seek out your brother who, who thinks that you've sinned against him or someone who sinned against you. Because the Lord does not want a bunch of people who come and worship him so that they can worship him. And people who give 10% of their money so they they can give 10% of their money. And people who come to church so they can say they came to church. The Lord wants people who worship him in spirit and in truth with all of their hearts. And the only way to worship the Lord with all of our hearts is not to be perfect and have a a clean heart by by our own merit, but to repent of our sins so that Christ can purify our hearts and save us from our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, as 1 John, I believe, 1, nine says, and all of our unrighteousness when we come to him and repent of our sin. Lynn, you can come on up. You guys can stand on up. And